Hey, Desperate Housewives super fans, welcome back. I'm Christy Gomez. I'm Summer Moran. I'm Cody Cash. Our very special guest, and welcome to a very special episode of We Know What You Did. It makes us sick. We're gonna tell. <laughs> Amazing. Cody was nice enough to hang out with us and talk about the season finale, and we are so excited for our first guest. Cody, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you guys. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me on. Cody, tell us a little bit about your role on Desperate Housewives. You played Zach Young, yes? I did. Yes, I did play the wonderful and very nice and very sane <laughs> Zach Young on um, uh, the first three seasons of Desperate Housewives and then later in the seventh season uh, when they resolved that storyline a little bit. And yeah, I mean, that was, uh, see, I was 16 uh, when that part came, uh, I remember when I first received the copy of Asides for the audition, and it was just the two scenes that I had with Paul, um, where I was talking about the obituary. My mother killed herself. He, he didn't put in an obituary, and I was wondering why I did it. I remember my first um, feeling when I read this? I was like, "This is really weird." It's like <laughs> weird. Like that, and it was there was so much um, subtext, and it just came right off the page. It was just like this feeling. And it was like in that exact moment, I knew like this this guy is weird. I mean, that's that's what he is. And um, so that was yeah. And I I remember I had just been back from Australia. I had been working on a show down there, and it was really long days. We were working fifteen hour days, but I I got a lot of experience. And so when I came back that year to um, pilot season and to be back uh, auditioning, uh, I, I was really dialed in. I was really focused. I was on I was on top of things. But that was the one project that really stood out. And uh, the initial audition I remember was at the Buena Vista Studios in Burbank, and uh, I was there. And I remember Nicolette Sheridan was there, and I thought, oh my gosh, she is so pretty. <laughs> and my little sixteen year old. Uh, mind and we actually had a nice rapport in the audition room and then yeah just everything sort of came together what was it like for you hearing that you had booked the job I was like yeah I know <laughs> um, Slay, love it. no no I, 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 incredible that was the one project that 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 year was really the one that I had put so much into and was really so it was just ecstatic you know and and from the first time that they had the cast together and we did the table read there was just the understanding and the sentiment like we have something here and I think that we everybody knew it I think the cast knew it I think the studio knew it knew it and so it was just like one of those those just really fantastic moments of synergy and just knowing that we had something unique and something special yeah when you know you know one of those definitely and we're so excited to have you because we love talking about Paul and Zach like it is probably our oh, favorite well. topic of conversation on this podcast. I think we reference Paul and Zach's dynamic in every episode, even the ones that like you guys didn't make an appearance in. Like we always find some way to bring it back to the young family. You know, that's, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> I, I think that their dynamic, their, their storyline, particularly, it was just, I think with Mark Moses and I, we, we had a really strong, unique understanding and rapport between the two of us where a lot of that stuff, you know, which was really cool about housewives was that, you know, it's a 
unfolding process where the Mark Cherry, the creator and the showrunner and uh, the writers were all sort of discovering what the show is as we were going along. And that really nice kind of odd dynamic that uh, Mark Moses and I had, I really feel like informed a lot of what was the core of Desperate Housewives, where you had this really kind of glossy uh, soap opera, which all this amazing, fun, uh, kind of in a way campy stuff, but then you had this weird undertone and this weird uh, thing. And so, yeah, so Mark and I, I mean, from the time that I worked on the show, I really enjoyed working with him. I I don't want to say the most, but he was just, he's an incredible actor, Mark Moses. Yeah. Definitely. All credit goes to him. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, He'd probably I'll... say the same thing about you. Oh, he better. <laughs> I'll make sure he does. Um, you know, one thing we noticed about this show, like watching it critically, like I've watched it so many times just on my own, but I feel like I focused so much on like the Susan and Mike storyline. I was like, where's Mike? Where's Susan? That I didn't really focus too much on like everything else, but seeing like the dynamics of everybody Mm -hmm. on the set and all like the main cast being like pretty at the time, like already like well-known actors who like already had like a past. And then the younger cast was like a new mix. I feel like we don't really see that happen as well. And I feel like that definitely was like part of the magic of the show. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, but to, to, but what's really interesting is that at, until that point, you know, we we were all very young. I mean, I was 16 when the show started. Andrea Bowen was 14, 15. Uh, Sean Pyfrom was my age. He was 16 as well. It, it, we had actually, I mean, even though we were so young, we had already been in the business for eight years, nine years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Andrea had been on Broadway. She did Les Mis on Broadway. Oh, wow. um, Sean and I, I had known Sean from Andrew Vandykamp, I'd known him for many years before uh, that show had happened. So, yeah, I mean, you had your older cast who had certainly done, I mean, a, a huge body of work and uh, were known, but, but we did have just a really great group of already sort of veteran performers at that point. Mm-hmm. And it's weird to say veteran at 60, I'm a veteran, but no, I mean, <laughs> I had grown up in the theater and had spent 10 years in the theater before I got into film and television. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was just, we just had such a great, we had such a great rapport between all of us. Was it sort of like a comforting thing for you to like know Sean going into it and kind of be like, Oh, I already have a friend in here. I mean, yes and no. I mean, it's so funny because the way that that, yes, of course, (laughs) to answer your question. Yeah. But you know, when you're young and you're like fighting for every job, you know, and Sean and I must have auditioned for these same roles for the last five years. I'd seen him at every audition. Mm, yeah. It's, you know, it's like you have this kind of like competitiveness. It's not like a real, com- it is, but it's not. But it's like, you know, you want to, you want to get that part. And, and I remember there was a part on um, Seventh Heaven once that Sean, it was between Sean and I and Sean got, and I was so bitter about it. <sighs> um, so, but, but. No, that's all just kind of fun. You know, that's just kind of the fun stuff. Uh, having that rapport, honestly, is crucial. And I, we all got along extremely well. So what more can you ask for in that in that kind of setting? Nothing, really. I mean, blessed, truly blessed to be able to do your life's work and have such an amazing platform and work with so many incredibly talented, not just through the cast, but in production. And I mean, everybody really, it's just, it's, it's incredible work. 
such amazing material to work with too. Truly. Every script yeah. was I mean, Mark, fantastic. Mark Cherry. It, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Mark, Mark Cherry created something really special. I think a lot of people knew that, that mm -hmm. he had, uh, he had shopped that script around a lot. He had people interested, but I don't know that he was, he, he had been turned down uh, quite a bit, but it was just a script that, um, now we had a guy, I believe, who was running the studio at the time, Steve McPherson, if I'm correct, who uh, was the one who took the chance on Desperate Housewives because, according to him, when he read it, he said, "I, this is going to be huge. Wow. This is going to be an amazing script. And uh, all the credit goes to Cherry. I know that he mm -hmm. just, he, this is his brainchild. That's the really neat thing, I think, about the work that you do when you tell stories and you work in cinema, you work in film, you work in television. You know, it's really about the people you're telling the stories for and it's intimate and people they spend many many years with you they grow up with you they feel in a, in a way like you're you're a part of their life you're a part of their family and uh that it's just that's i think one of the it, which is interesting because it's for me as a as a performer you know my task is just to deliver that role is to deliver that part um so i don't ever really think about the other side of it of like the people who are the fans, the people who are uh, receiving it. And really, truly, that's why we do what we do. We do it for people. We do it for, for that. So it's... I'm, I'm curious, is that sort of a realization that you've come to more recently or while you were on the show, were you kind of understanding of like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of a part of these people's lives. Like I'm in their homes every week for 40 minutes. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, honestly, more recently. Yeah. Uh, I think that, you know, as I was saying, I had done a, a lot of work before then. And it was always just that was, it was just the work. It was just something I loved. It was just performance and it was just being there. And with Desperate Housewives, that was the one thing that uh, it was it was kind of as we were shooting the pilot, it was kind of like the studio knew, the cast knew. Everybody kind of had the sense that this is going to be really big. Mm. We kind of knew that. And then when we debuted, we debuted at like with 30 million viewers at number one. And so it was almost in a, in a way, Desperate Housewives was like an overnight success. Mm -hmm. So, so the things that, so the things that kind of everything sort of changed, but it was hard to contextualize that as a young person. I'm just like, I, I, what do you mean? I'm saying lines on a TV show, right. you know, like I've been doing this for eight years, you know, and, and, but as time has progressed and I've met. Um, so many people who have lived with this and seen the show for so long. And, and that's kind of when, and, and when I got the understanding that like, wow, like it really is significant to a lot of people. And that's kind of, for me as a person, when I understood the reason why we do what we do in the first place, which is we do it for people. We do it so for to entertain people. I mean, to make people feel something, you know? Marvelous answer, of course, of course. It has been uh, 20 years since the start of all of this, since Desperate Housewives sure. aired. Yeah. And on this podcast, because it is Desperate Housewives, we like to offer our own moments of desperation from the week prior or just from recent history. Um, so I'd like to open that up to either of you now to start off with, what has been your own personal moment of desperation recently? Cody, why don't you kick us off? Uh, Christy, would you like to? <laughs> oh, you're going to have me kick it off. <laughs> Unless you need to think okay. about it. Yeah. I can, I can I, start. I, I actually do because you know what? I, I don't feel desperate at all. That's but, good. Um, 
I, I don't, I don't really have these moments. I, I, I mean, you know, my intense struggle with my mental health. Um, no. Uh, no, I mean, gosh, uh, I think that Chrissy, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, I'm going to football that one to you. Okay. I'll, I'll take it. Cause I, I have a big one. Um, but basically when we started doing this podcast, I think, and we like needed something in our minds now, at least to one of us, some like sitcom level ridiculousness has happened to us every week for the last month, the three months that we've been oh, doing nice. this. It's truly something We've been else. doing this since July, Christy. I know. And there's always something that has happened to us. Has it been, is that more than three months? I don't know. Um, but my moment of desperation this week, guys, trigger warning if you don't like bathroom humor, because I sure don't, but this is something that happens to me. <laughs> oh, no. My cat, I don't, if he ate something, I don't know, but he has had the runs for two days. And two nights oh, in a row, kitty. he has woken me up at three in the morning, pants dirty, the bathroom disgusting. <laughs> And I've just been like, Cody, if you don't know, the last few weeks, I haven't slept great. I've had a lot of crazy things happen to me. I had a 48-hour day a couple weeks ago. And since then, I just haven't been the same. And I was really just starting to recover. And now the last two nights, I've had to clean up this cat. But he acts completely fine otherwise. Like, he he's like, help, help, help. And then I try to clean him. And he's like, what are you doing? No, I want to play. So... It's just been a lot of that. So right now he's locked up in my room, my bathroom. Um, I made my mom help oh, because no. I'm pretty sure she gave him spoiled food. But no. I'm quite exhausted. You have to understand, <laughs> Cody and listeners, that Christy's cat has a demonstrated history of um, doing things in places other than where he is supposed to do them. <laughs> yeah, when Summer stays with me, he likes to pee on her bed. But only then, he just likes to send a message, I think. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's sending a message. He sounds like a cat, I think. Yeah. No, like... Cat, it, cats are naughty. It was Summer and a couple of our did. other friends staying over, and one by one, he just knocked them out one at one one bed at a time. Yeah. So... Man, well, how's he, how's he doing now? How is he... Is he doing better? He's doing better now. He's He's starting to firm up a little bit. Um, but I just feel bad for him. And this happened to him to, last time he was in Vermont too. So I don't know if he just wants to get back to Los Angeles as bad as I do, but that's been mine. Summer, Ooh. how was your moment of desperation this week? Not nearly as humorous as yours. <laughs> if I liked to talk about toilet humor, I would go into more detail, but it actually, I hate it. So no, I get it. Same. You're not getting details from me this week, Desperate Housewives super fans. I I hear tofu in the back. That's not tofu. No, that's your cat. Wait, Cody, do you have a cat with you? I, I was waiting to, <gasps> because I'm going to parlay your cat story in, in, into my cat story. So, yes, I do. That's my cat, <gasps> Nala. And she is – and I was going to say, uh, that is actually probably my moment of desperation, which was just yesterday um, when – I was here alone with her and I couldn't find her food. And she was screaming all day and I feel so badly. I can't feed you. She has her dry food, but she's spoiled. She doesn't want the dry food. Yeah, I get it. And so there it is. That's my very simple moment of desperation. Aww. I couldn't feed Nala yesterday. Has she been what she wanted? Has she been satiated now? 
Yeah, she's got she's she's got everything. She's hooked up. Oh, so you do do you travel with her when you go for the holidays? No, she's actually she is here with my brother. Okay. Um so I just yeah, so I just did some some traveling for the last couple months mm-hmm. and he has been very nice to look after her Aww. and it's actually really sweet that she is the like the most loved cat. Um they my brother and his fiance, they uh have a stocking for her with her name on it, a little small cat Aww. stocking and uh it's very cute. I love that. Well, we're all cat people here, so I love that. Now I wish my moment of desperation was about my cat. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> it's just the fact that I awoke this morning at 3.10 a.m., bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and did not sleep a wink again until after 7.15. Could not tell you why. Just lay there, eyes open, uh, head swimming with thoughts, unfortunately. I got up, got out of the bedroom. I I called my mom and she said, you should do something productive. And I was like, yes, I'll clean the apartment. I look around, the apartment's clean. Why? So I didn't really have anything to do. I just waited to go back to bed. Summer, were, were, you, were you scrolling on your phone? Honestly, Cody, I put it off for as long as I could. There came a point at about 6.30 where I was like, time to doom scroll. Yeah. And it put me yeah. out. That's what happened to me during my 48-hour day. Yeah, I felt like you during the espresso martini debacle. No bad days, honestly. What is your astrological sign, your regular one, and then as the Desperate Housewives characters, what is your big three? Oh, yes. My favorite characters? Is that is that what you're... It's, it's like, you know how you might be like an Aries sun and a Leo moon and a Taurus rising? Oh, okay. So, for instance, like, I'm a Susan Sun with a Brie Moon. Does that make sense? With a Brie and rising. I'm a yeah, Gabby okay. Sun, a Lynette Moon. I think I'm changing it to a, an Edie Rising instead of a Gabby Rising. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know that I know the astrology signs well enough to associate. Me, personally, I, I'm, a Leo, I'm a Leo with a Taurus Rising, Okay. Okay. Uh, so that's me personally. Um, Zach is it, it, exact, exactly the same because I have no idea when his birthday is. Um, <laughs> Dang it. And, uh, but I would say he, <laughs> if Zach had a rising, it would definitely be Brie. I think he would definitely be, I think Zach really likes things in order. And I think yeah. he, and he wants things to be okay. He wants things to, to, to be in little, you know, and, and they, they did. Um, this is an interesting story. They did try in the first season they were developing a really extensive Bree and Zach storyline um and I think that when they looked at it and I, I actually believe I spoke to you guys about this the first time we mm-hmm. spoke they kind of felt they kind of felt it was a little weird I mean you know Zach was weird sure but but the whole Bree and him and thing was just a little bit so they actually developed the character of George in place of uh that storyline um which I thought was really uh, an interesting thing but yeah so it's, um uh scorpio scorpio definitely yeah scorpio zach is very wild um no uh <laughs> i'm just gonna try i'm gonna try i think zach would be uh a virgo with um <gasps> with a definitely a virgo <laughs> a male virgo oh my god so is rex. rex so is rex we decided rex was oh a yeah, virgo. yeah definitely. so that makes sense yeah and I, with the, with the Brie rising, whatever she is, I want I want to say probably um, 
Also, Vir- also a Virgo. He's a Virgo with a Virgo rising. Honestly, I would give that's dicey I would stuff. give Zach a, a triple Virgo. <laughs> for sure. Maybe maybe some yes. Gemini in there. Do you remember if for the proposed Zach and Bree storyline, if like Zach would have been the one responsible for Rex's death at the end? You know, I'm not I'm not sure. I I I, I can see where that might have manifested. Um I don't know what they had in plan for that storyline. I really don't. I um I can see that it might. I mean, it might have been manic and, you know, obsessive and like, you know, whatever, which would have I it probably would have caused a lot of contention. I think ultimately the George storyline is fantastic. And yeah. I think that mm-hmm. Roger Bart, um, just what an incredible uh performer, consummate actor, Broadway actor, theater actor, musical theater, just an incredible performer. Uh, well, he was one of my favorite, uh, not only characters on the show, uh, really he was, but also um, just people. He's just such a good, kind-hearted man. So um, I think ultimately they did the right thing by going with that storyline. I remember you telling us about that, and I've like kept it in mind as we've continued to watch the season, and I have been holding my tongue to not tell the Desperate Housewives super fans. But in the last episode, there's this whole like montage of um, – George like sneaking into Bree's house and like finding all their like sex closet stuff and like taking all these photos and in my mind oh, I was yeah, like yeah, oh my right. god what if this was Zach right yeah so you can see there's there's shades of that in there mm-hmm. and um I I do remember there is a scene that the only scene I have the only time I ever worked with uh, Roger was uh when Carlos is going to jail and they have his going away party in their backyard and there was a just a quick cut it was maybe two seconds maybe two seconds of the episode where uh both george and i are getting punch from the punch bowl and um i do remember the and i got i think i told you guys this i do remember the um way it was written it said the two creepiest fucking dudes mm-hmm. in on wisteria lane getting punched together <laughs> and it's so true again we love discussing like the really like far off the spectrum from normal characters which is why we love talking about zach george paul even though paul very normal just misunderstood well i think part of that too is just like they're they're so interesting to talk about like these are characters you know you you could do deep dives on like we could have a whole episode dedicated to the mind of paul young the mind of zach young the mind of george like yeah, I, well, you know, I actually just would like to to do to you know uh, add something to that. I think that when you look at the character of Paul, you know, he was written as a bad guy. You know, I mean, he he was uh, keeping this giant secret. He did steal a child from a uh, drug addict woman. He did help cover up a murder. He did also murder another woman uh, with a blender. You know, he he wasn't um, a good guy. But the nuance I think that Mark brought it to it was that he was this tormented guy who was actually just, you know, in a really awkward and strange um, situation. And he really, I think he wanted, and there was a likability that he brought to that character that I think that kind of transcended. And I, and I see this, he's got like a lot of like, Paul Young gets a lot of like love, man. People I'm like, you know, they forget, is he a murderer? Yes, but he's a murderer with a heart of gold. Don't forget preaching to the choir because here's the thing is like this is something i always thought but i 
you know, for like our socials and stuff, I was like, I'm really going to like dive into this to like make people mad and like start some conversation, get some views. But people just agreed with me. I was like, Paul Young is innocent, free Paul Young. And all the comments are like, yes, I love him. He did nothing wrong. So I was like, wow. Yeah. And and meanwhile, this poor, mentally unstable, abused kid continues (laughs) to be the most hated character on the show. You guys are welcome. (laughs) Zach Young can get no love. And it is, it's okay. No, he should be. He should. To be honest, I, I, um, for, for me, I think that there was a sympathetic aspect to that character, especially in the first two seasons. I think that when we got into the third season, when he was just kind of, in a way, there was just such a 180 with the character where he was kind of insufferable in a, in a way, like the way he approached uh, Gabrielle. And um, I actually look back at that and I go, yeah, I mean, it, it is a kind of um, a non-sympathetic character at that point. So I understand. I will say, I think that's just a testament to your acting, because as we've spoken now and gotten to know you, you're nothing like Zach Young. And we know, and I'm sure you've come across actors who, like, you see them in a show, and then you meet them, and you're like, wow, they weren't acting, were they? That's just how they are. But when you can play a character that's just so not who you are, and you make people, like, feel some type of way about it, that's when you know it's just pure performance. You know, yeah, well, thank you. I mean, I I personally gravitate towards, yeah, just more of the sort of nuance and and complexity of of like these people and love to deep dive and stuff. But there are aspects of Zach, too, I mean, that were my own. I mean, that sort of – Zach to me was kind of like he was the physical embodiment of like all of the awkward teenage insecurity Mm-hmm. And sort of like, I don't know who I am. I don't know what my place is. I'm going to say the wrong thing. He's like, yeah. you know, intrusive thoughts, you know, when you're like having a conversation with someone and you're like, you think of the most absurd thing that you could say and you're like fighting yourself. Like, what What the, go away. Like, Zach was just completely intrusive thoughts. That's, he just was the id for that. And in, in a way, it was actually really therapeutic for me to sort of kind of like exercise all of that um sort of, you know, feeling of, of, of teenage anxiety and like that you don't know your place and you don't know who you are and, and everybody hates you and you hate everybody, you know? And that's, uh, so that's that. And, and I think that everybody, every person, especially teenagers feel that one way or another. We've all experienced feeling like Zach being Zach. And then the times we don't, I feel like we, um, We'll, we'll like scapegoat somebody else as Zach to be like, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not that bad. Like you project your insecurity onto somebody else and you pick out what's wrong with them, right. especially when you're younger yeah. to be like, well, that, that person's worse off yeah, than and it's I like am. Everybody tries so hard to not be who they are. Maybe they don't know who they are and we're trying to, to fit in. We're trying to like be accepted or discover where we fit, who we are. And, uh, the one thing I did really like about Zach was that he was just, with exception into the third season, when it was a guy who was trying really hard to not be who he was. He was like mm-hmm. going above it. He was, and, and you know, I, I remember that conversation I had with Mark Cherry when he brought me back into his office and he said, literally, he sat me down and I'll never forget. He sat me down and he looks at me and goes, so Zach's hot now. 
and and and, and I and I and I literally hit a wall. I'm like, wait, I'm I'm like, wait, I'm I'm Zach. We're talking about Zach. And so and so for my my challenge as the actor was to figure out how do I get Zach Young from the point that we know he from from where he is. How do I get him here? Where where you tell me he's hot? And and the obvious answer to me was, well, he's not hot. He he's just trying really fucking hard to 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 be something that he isn't and and so he's actually even more awkward in a way than he was before mm-hmm. zach came together for me when he had his little button up and he had his little side part and he and he had mm-hmm. his glasses and it was even so and it was even down to yeah. the socks like and the and the penny loafers that he wore you know it it really for 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 me when i'm in the space and i'm it's like you you could say you know you could try to label it and call it a method or whatever. But I think that when you're doing such a nuanced character, it you, you have to remain in that space because otherwise when your your setup is done and you're on the day and you're going to shoot, you're not going to really get the full depth of everything that's going on. So for Zach, it was just staying in that, like, I hate everybody. Mm-hmm. I hate everyone. And just, awkward and and insecure and that was kind of the that was kind of the yeah that was kind of the approach for that do you know who had a very similar sentiment to that like as you're talking about costume and like really feeling into that space i can't wait to tell you this who, who? do you want to guess oh wait, can i guess Housewives? no <laughs> yes can i, guess, can I guess yes yes you guess first we can both guess, guess. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna guess I'm going to guess either Joaquin or Daniel Day or or one of my favorite, um, Jack Gleason. But those are my three guesses. I don't know. You could be right, but those were not the people I was thinking of. Okay. Christy knows. Alan Rickman. Ding, oh, ding, Alan ding. Rickman. Oh, yeah. Rickman. What a fantastic actor. <sighs> yeah, yeah I, I mean, I can understand that. Definitely. Um, and I, th- and I don't know Alan's story so much, but I know that he, later in life, I think it was that he became an actor. Um, I, I could do another podcast with you on him alone, to be honest. Summer loves Alan Rickman. So, you know, you know, like you're, if you're doing a theater production, you have two months, uh, to, to be this character. You have a static script. You have everything, the arcs of all the characters are there. It's been written. It's a, it's a piece that has existed for 50 years for a hundred years for 500 years. It's a, you know, um, and so you, you get a, you get a certain amount of time and space to be in that. And, and when you're performing there, you're performing an arc in one night, you're, you know, you're performing, a in an entirety. So there is a sense of like, you live in the space of it to do that. Um, when you're doing television, especially it's very segmented, you know, you're shooting the middle first, you're shooting the end next, and then the beginning at the end. And, you know, it's in a way, it's like you have to um, really compartmentalize and know, like, be surgical with it. Like, know exactly, okay, this is this part that ties into that part that ties into this part. And you know, also with television, you know, you're you're playing moments and you're playing beats, right. and that and that beat is going to lead to that and this. And you have to be aware of that stuff as the performer, but then not really because when you're doing the scene, the character, you know has no context for any of that. You're not, you don't, you're not thinking about this stuff. You're just being, you're just being the character. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So without living in the space of it, it's it's really hard. It probably it, for me, it ends up getting really convoluted. And because you know, as the person, you know, like, okay, well, this is this means this, and this is gonna tie into the third episode, which is gonna tie into that. And and that's not really gonna get an authentic um performance. And I actually heard Tom Holland uh play Spider, obviously Tom Holland. Um he was speaking about his process and he has all of his work that he's done and he knows he's in the physical space of the character, but he doesn't lines. He doesn't worry about the lines until he is right in front of the camera. Mm. And, um, and, and that way it's, you know, fresh and authentic. Okay. So we are in the seer, not series finale, not for another few years. We are in the season finale of season one, episode 23, I think. Um, one wonderful day and we finally get Mary Alice's backstory into why she got to Asteria Lane. So we see her as Angela and she says she was living a life of quiet desperation. And I love that as a callback to our podcast summer because the word moment of desperation is like now in our everyday vernacular. So I felt like that was for us. Then we see Felicia being young and beautiful and she's looking at a calendar with Fairview in it. And she says she has family there, which is very important. And then we see there, there we see Brett Cullen, uh, our detective. He was all chopped up. I love that line. I always, I always say that <laughs> line. Uh, Brett Cullen, fantastic actor, veteran is, I mean, if you ever wanted to be impressed with anybody's uh, IMDb page, it would be Brett Cullen. Um, very fine actor. We'll have to get him on the pod. I actually loved this flashback. I thought it was like beautifully done, mm -hmm. just cinematically speaking. Um, really enjoyed that. And obviously, from a narrative perspective, it's nice to finally start to see so many of these questions get answered. And I liked how we only got like part of the story in the beginning, too. Obviously, you know, in 2004, 2005, I mean, we were shooting everything on, on film. And I just really, truly, as a cinephile, I just love the sort of weird dreamlike quality that film is able to accomplish. We see Mary Alice receive a surprise visitor. It's Deirdre holding a little baby and she's being really belligerent. And she's like, you're the only one at rehab who treated me like a person. She wants money. And then she does the unthinkable. She offers to sell her baby to Mary Alice, Angela and Paul, and she's like, I, I know you talked about not being able to have kids. I know you want a baby. And Paul, for his part, is like, this is crazy. We're not doing that. And Mary Alice just slowly closes the door, and you can tell she's thinking about it. I also loved how in this scene, it was mainly between, like, Mary Alice and, like, druggy Deirdre. But then we just have Paul in the back just, like, interjecting three lines, like, hey, that's crazy. We're not going to do that money not food <laughs> well i mean it, it really does add so much uh information and and gives so much context to paul as a person like he he was in this situation it wasn't his choice but you can see how he just changed after all of this happened because before he was just like a he was just a, a, a dad-like figure with no kid and he was just so happy, loved his wife, loved Salt Lake City. <gasps> do we think they were Mormons? Mark Cherry is like, you can do whatever you want. Just stop <laughs> making extra Mark story Cherry's for my characters. Mark Cherry's going to give us a cease and desist <laughs> and say, stop <laughs> saying all of this is fact. 
It's okay. We have Cody Cash stamp of approval, and that's all that matters. Hey, don't bring me into this. <laughs> and then, of course, we see this momentous moment. Sorry for the redundancy, where Deirdre is rushed to the hospital from the quote-unquote crack house. That is the way that the EMS or EMT put it, and uh, it's a little jarring to see. All the cops are like, where's the kid? He's probably in the crack house. And you see Angela slash Mary Alice looking so nervous because she doesn't want her new baby, Dana, being taken away from her. So she just glances at the calendar that says Fairview. And then in the next scene, we see um, now Mary Alice, now Paul, and their new baby, who was now renamed Zach, at their house on Wisteria Lane. I also love the detail. If you saw baby uh, Zach there was in a button up shirt all the way to the top. I never caught that detail before. That is. Wait, I didn't notice. That's so cute. That's amazing. And then we cut to three years later and Deirdre comes back looking clean. And um, then we will find out what happens at the end of the episode because that's when we cut back to present day. And everybody on Wisteria Lane, all the women are getting phone calls and they hear that Rex is in the hospital. So they go over to the hospital to support Bree. And Bree is just like, don't give me the support. Don't be helpful right now because I'm going to lose it. And honestly, good on her for setting the boundary. My question is, where were Andrew and Danielle? Like, we know Danielle called. She was being lucid, and she called all her Bree's friends. But, like, where was – I feel like Andrew was kind of missing in this episode. Well, Andrew can't get behind the wheel of a car again, right? That's – well, nobody knows what he did, so he can, technically. <laughs> <laughs> and then Susan starts going on a rant about Martha's journals, and Lynette is like, oh, that'll do it. Yeah, Susan's very excited that she's – found Mrs. Hoover's journal in Mike's possession. <laughs> She's like a little too excited for somebody who is not in out of the woods yet. Oh, I mean, just that's some juicy stuff that's happening here in, in on Wisteria Lane. I mean, I would be invested too. I know. Everybody's scared <laughs> of those journals. She wrote every single thought she had. There is never a dull moment. You know, Martha Hoover is arguably the what was the girl's name? Hannah Baker of uh, 13 Reasons Why. I don't know why I remember her name. <laughs> why? Because she wrote about everyone. She oh, had records right. of everybody. Welcome to your tape. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I was like, I don't see the connection. But Zach starts running out of the house. I said, it's funny how we're all cat people because the scene was giving cat to me a little bit. Like just <laughs> running, running, running. I'm going to my house. I'm going to my house. And Felicia's like, come back, come back, come back. <laughs> and then he's like, no, I need to stay here. My dad's coming back. And Felicia's like, no, he's not. Your dad hates you, basically. It is so understandable that Zach would have wanted to go back to his own house and his own bed. Right, yeah. I mean, I just, I, I feel so bad for this kid for so many reasons i mean he yeah. just just certainly did not was not in a good situation from the beginning it's so confusing and like these people he has no idea what's happening and obviously does not really have anybody looking out for his best interest except for this crazy woman 
who he can has no idea, cannot contextualize at all. And all she's doing is separating father and son. Yeah, like a few episodes ago, um, Paul tranquilized Zach for the good of the neighborhood because Zach had just um, <laughs> blown up Susan's kitchen. Oh. <laughs> and Do you remember committing that that act, Cody? <laughs> That that act of uh, violence, yeah, uh, that arson. <laughs> I believe that I do. Yeah, so he was tranquilized, and that's when Felicia basically kidnapped him, and then right, told Paul, right, "You're yeah. never going to see your kid ever again." And then there was the whole thing. Paul tried to give him a baseball mitt with a little note that said, "Hey, meet me on the baseball field," but Zach had a meltdown because he doesn't like baseball. He's more of a hockey fan. <laughs> is that canon? <laughs> is now. <laughs> well, I mean, he, as you can see with his, uh, the way that he treats Felicia there at the end. <gasps> Wait, was that a uh, hockey? I don't know sports. Was that a hockey stick? That was a hockey stick, yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that either. Oh, okay, yeah, I just saw some weapon. Um, yeah, he starts beating Felicia in the house. Um, and we just, we don't see any of that. We just cut and you hear Felicia go, ah! Zach rightly wants to know what she did to Paul. He says, what did you do to my dad? I, I did write the note that I like seeing Zach upset over Paul because we have seen them up to this point have this very contentious relationship. And so to see him, uh, I, I guess, I guess in a sense, it's like the concern of if my dad's not here, what's going to happen to me? But then there is that level of concern of, well, where is he? Is he okay? And I, I liked seeing that sort of like compassion question mark come out of Zach. It's his father. It's the only life that, that he knows. I mean, clearly very disturbed and does not have any of the actual help or support that would lead him to, you know, be a normal person. I kind of see this. It's so interesting in the context of today. It's like, this is clearly someone who needs a lot of help, but instead of that, he just gets trashed on so it's kind of, it's, it's kind of interesting and they never gave him or paul time to grieve either because it was like oh mary alice died and then the next week they were like oh, paul and zach are so creepy i don't know why it's like uh, maybe they're upset guys i don't know christy you'll appreciate this um cody have you seen princess diaries uh i know what you know what actually say. no i've never seen that film <sighs> Okay, well, I need you to watch. Now that you're on my Disney Plus. A scene in the, <laughs> there's watch. a scene in the very beginning when Mia, her her father died, and she's riding the scooters with her best friend Lily, and Lily's like, you're still upset about that? It's been like two months. And it's just the most out-of-pocket thing somebody could say to someone who has lost a person very close to them. And it's kind of the same with Paul and Zach. Like, why are why is nobody giving the sympathy that is due? Tele television, baby, got to keep moving. <laughs> Except Carlos not going to jail for seven episodes. Um, <laughs> Speaking of keeping it moving, Christy, why don't you take us into the next scene? Um, let's see. In the next scene, we meet the Apple Whites, and Edie goes over and. Um, she's basically like hi like i've never had anybody sell a house buy a house sight unseen before like let me show you around and they're like no 
you cannot come in here ever. She's just like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's yeah. so weird. Alfred Woodward, what a, what a consummate and incredible um, actor. She's so good. She is just, it was such an addition to the show. The Apple White storyline was, it just was just this new season and they brought in this, this storyline and she just nailed it. She is such a fantastic actor. She is such a good person too. And in the next scene, we see Susan relentlessly calling Mike. She wants to know about Mrs. Hoover's journal. Uh, my note says she's so unhinged. She's crazy. She goes, I know all about the blackmail and Mike's not picking up and she really wants to have a, an in real time conversation with him. So when he returns her call from what is an undisclosed location, Susan suggests giving the journal over to the, to the police. And Mike's a little hesitant, but he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, that, that sounds good. And we just pan and see Paul with his mouth duct taped in the back of Mike's car. And you gotta love those flip phones too. I mean, if that doesn't date it. We always say the only Mike's thing phone. that really dates the show is the technology. And, uh, and now we have uh, Carlos here in his jumpsuit. <laughs> Gabby comes over to testify, or she's saying she's going to testify, and um, he goes, beating up two gay guys looks really bad. And Gabby goes, beating up anybody looks really bad. So she was kind of like, all lives matter a little bit. I was like, Gabby, this is about a homophobic hate crime. Like, okay. Gabby is telling Carlos how she is going to make him do all of the work for the upcoming baby, as she should. She's like, you're going to be the one getting up in the middle of the night, and you're going to change the diapers, and you're going to do this. And suddenly, Carlos is not so keen to have a child anymore. Good for you, Carlos. I support you. <laughs> Your two-timing wife. <laughs> but here's the thing. She's using this, like... um she's using like she's saying she's lying to have an affair having an affair she's like okay i'm gonna lie and say i have an affair but you have to do this 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 and this and i'm like wow the woman in stem she really knows how to how to work it because she's simply going to be telling the truth on the stand in which carlos thinks she's going to be lying for her and committing perjury but right you know really <laughs> if, if you look at the character of carlos he's a great husband like, I mean, he supports this woman uh, undyingly. He provides her this incredible life. He gives her everything. And and, and for a guy who is as, uh, you know, macho as he is, like, he is, like, really patient with her. Like, Cody, he used well, slave labor. He did also <laughs> switch out her birth control. That's my issue with Cody. <laughs> Oh, okay. So, 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 so slave labor is a no-go. Respectfully, respectfully, it's, it, it's a no-go, but hey, you know this, you know, Paul who murdered Hoover with a, with a blender. You know what? We forgive him. He went that through a lot. Different. He, he went through a lot. Listen, we have some morals. Okay. We have a little bit of morals and he, the slave labor is one thing, but he messed with Gabby's birth control. And that's where we draw the line. Murder is fine, but messing with a woman's medicine is not. I, I know, you know, banging your 17 year old gardener. That's okay. That's, that's oh. my women outside the marriage. You know what? She need, she deserved that. 
She dicks. I keep saying that this storyline obviously would not fly today, especially if you consider the switching the genders. My God, I like don't even want to think about it. Um, So I think Gabby is in the wrong for that. With that said, nobody's innocent. With that said, have you seen Jesse Metcalf? Come on. Actually, Cody, we have. We have seen and met Jesse Metcalf. Okay, so Lynette takes the kids to lunch and she seems sees Tom playing air hockey with a bunch of kids. And he just like the look in his eyes, it's like he just looks derailed, like he's done, like he's clocked out. And this is how she finds out that he quit his job. Yeah, that's that's a rough way to find out in the middle of the mall arcade. <laughs> I love Doug Savant. I love their relationship. They're one of my favorite storylines. I think that they, regardless of the the what they have and and you know to deal with in terms of like balancing having careers and also raising family, their relationship. I just it it, it it's it's like the 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 poster relationship for. You know, I just, I just think there's just fantastic. Okay. I agree with you. And, um, people on, on the TikTok, and I think the younger people watching the show, like they hate Tom and they're like, he's a terrible husband. And I'm like, guys, I think that this is the most realistic. I do too. I think that's the most realistic, um, couple on the show. And like, they're kind of like the anchor and also the storylines that they've been given this season, we've noticed they're not particularly like the most exciting or the most like story driven ones, but they're the ones that really just like bring the show back down. Cause like you have this murder, murder, murder. And then you have Lynette being like, I need to get a nanny. And that's really what like yeah. keeps it at a good balance. Yeah, it does. It grounds it really well. Mm-hmm. And I think it is a fair portrayal of like just that exact, that struggle that, you know, we have when balancing uh, a family life and also being ambitious and wanting to have, you know, these, these big careers. And that's why I think that uh, Tom is a, is a great husband. I mean, he makes those sacrifices, even though he, he is a provider and he does, he, he allows Lynette to, to be able to do follow her dreams also, you know? And it, so it's just that she, she's clearly, I mean, Felicity is one of the most talented actors I've ever worked with. She is really fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when she, she, gosh, I believe she won in the, our first season. She won the Emmy for her role as Lynette. And, uh, you know, just her body of work, you know, she's married mm-hmm. to William H. Macy. And what they have done, uh, continuous dedication to um, theater and uh, their connection with one of my all-time favorite uh, playwrights and film directors, David Mamet. You know, they just, it's just such a consummate body of work that they do and i particularly love their storyline because it does ground it does ground desperate mm-hmm. housewives mm-hmm. yeah that and and to your point cody about tom being a good partner and a, and a good father we're about to see that really kick into high gear because i think part of the reason there's a lot of um tom conflict or a lot of like tom hate is because in season one we've seen him be very like work oriented and wanting to really kind of keep keep his lives at home and at work separate but we're about to see him take the reins in a new way 
And so in this scene, Lynette wants to talk about everything going on at home and why did Tom quit? And Tom's just like, nope, I'm going to hang out here. <laughs> <laughs> and then she's, he's like, go home, Lynette. I, it should be, yeah. And as a man, like, I, I think that that's just, honestly, what it, that's a really noble sacrifice. You know, like, I, I, to be, have the responsibility really as a house dad, like that, as a man, like that, that, that's not necessarily that easy, especially in this world that mm -hmm. like judges you, judges you by the, you know, your status and, you know, what you have and don't. And just, yeah, I think that I, I love their storyline. I agree. And I think when he's like out working, being the breadwinner, he's just not living his truth because he doesn't want to do that. Lynette wants to and we will see that he gets along so well with kids that's why when he's randomly playing air hockey with these strange <laughs> these strange kids i'm like tom loves this this is him in his element yeah um so we're we're excited to see more of them but in the next scene we're gonna bring things back down a little bit we see rex and brie at the hospital and this is really what I like to call Rex's redemption arc mm -hmm. because he apologizes for everything. And I just thought it was so sad. And it really brought into my point that I made a few episodes ago where there's this trope I've noticed in TV um, where it's like when a character that has been written to not be liked, when they're about to die, they get redeemed. So then you will be upset. And that's exactly what we see as Bree's just talking about the spring cleaning and he's like, no, I notice everything about you. Actually. I got a little sad. Yeah. My heart was heavy. Yeah. Ultimately you want resolution. Everybody wants it. And um, I don't think that any of these people are necessarily wrong for having any type of contentious things in their relationship. I mean, I, I hadn't rewatched these episodes for a very long time. And uh, going back when seeing that, I remember thinking from a young person's perspective, watching that like that Brie Vandy Camp was a bit insufferable as, mm -hmm. you know, um, it, it, not insufferable in the way that she was like a hard, it, like she was a difficult person or a bad person, but just that, you know, you, yeah, you feel like you're living in a Stepford commercial, you know, and so there's a, it, but in rewatching it and from a different perspective now, I'm 36. Like, it's like, you know, she's a really wonderful wife. And it's, uh, you know, you kind of understand both of the sides of it, why Rex was frustrated. I, and I'm just, it's just really good. It's just really well done. It's well done writing. That's so funny that you say that because that's exactly my perspective on this show. When I watched it the first time and I was like 15, I was like, Bree's so annoying. Oh my God, I would never want her to be my mom. And then the more I've watched it, now I'm 27 and I watch it and I'm like, she was doing her best. She was being an amazing mother. She literally did nothing wrong. She just was, didn't want to show her emotion and that's it. But yeah, the way that these, again, these characters can just, you see them so differently in different parts of your lives. Look, I would love the meals that Brie Vandycamp puts on that table. That's what we are saying. Are you kidding me? That's what we're duck saying. Duck confit? Duck confit. And, and Rex just wants to eat a burrito out of the microwave. Like, come <laughs> on, be grateful. Rex is what I have. Brie is what I want. <laughs> 
wow so true okay but the one thing about this scene is brie goes let's just say we're even and i'm like okay i don't think that hanging out with <laughs> the creepy pharmacist is the same as like asking for a divorce and being like i actually don't want to get a divorce and having an affair and all the other things that rex did but that's just my opinion personally i don't think that they're even at all well i mean regardless of you know where anybody finds themselves in difficult situations in life and in lives and in relationships like you you still love this person you mm -hmm. know and that's yeah. that that's what we deal with on a da daily basis with the, our loved ones whether we are in dysfunctional relationships or you know we have problems with our family which we all do you know um the fact of the matter is is that you do love them and especially if you're you know realize that you're going to lose somebody you know, that's uh, obviously where you prioritize the things that mean the most. Cody, this is like so heartwarming. You know, like I, I really enjoy having um, this other perspective, especially, I guess, a male perspective, but in general, because usually Christy and I are like, yep, 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 laugh, 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 laugh. And it's really nice to, to like bring some uh, grounding in a sense. Mm -hmm. Like you are right now the Tom and Lynette to our murder story. <laughs> <laughs> to our Paul and Zach. Little Zach Young, come on now. But you, know, but you know what the thing is, is that is that you just, it, it, in respect to uh, Brie and Rex, like, you you know you can see that rex really does love brie you mm -hmm. know and he just wants he just wants this facade this like i i need a i need a human being here you know like yeah. i i just i don't i feel totally disconnected from from you i guess i get that perspective a little bit it is good to have a male perspective here Because we're just here like, terrible husband. We hate Rex. We hate Rex. Be nice. In, in fairness, in fairness, I, I this is Desperate Housewives. And the narrative of this show is told from their perspective. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and the men on the show are sort of kind of revolving parts in their story, which is really cool. It's really unique, especially for primetime television in the early 2000s, like mm -hmm. to, 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 which is, I think, one of the reasons why the show did land as much as it did was because it, it gave a voice to the uh, the quiet desperation of you know your your average mid America um, uh, housewife that never really it was always from the male's perspective you know it was never really from from theirs and so that was one of the cool and unique things about this show. Yeah, always doing stuff that nobody else was doing and stuff you would never expect. Okay, so Julie is staying with Carl for the weekend. Finally, we see Carl return. And um, Carl is making fun of Mike. And he's like, I can't believe the plumber is moving into your house. And Julie's like, leave him alone, dad. Mike's a cool guy. <laughs> and I like having him around. <laughs> Insecure much? <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. But we also love to say... We love to say that Susan loves blue collar workers because we see Mike the plumber. And then there was one episode where she was going out with like the construction guy. So I love that this was kind of, again, a little callback to our podcast. <laughs> so it's like, he just keeps <laughs> calling him the plumber, the plumber, the plumber. And then we also find out that um, 
Susan is taking care of Bongo while Mike is just mysteriously on his like long plumbing trip. So she goes over there. (laughs) (laughs) She goes over there to take care of Bongo and she is greeted by Zach coming around the corner. And I will say this was a jump scare for me and I did jump. I have that in my notes. I got scared. Zach is looking particularly disturbed here. <laughs> but he's got a he's got a little taste of violence now. He's he's beaten up uh Felicia here, and so now he's like, fuck it, balls to the wall, let's go. I'm getting my and you know what? Someone's got this kid's gotta stand up for himself. No one else is. This kid's gotta stand up for himself. Like, what is actually going on with this guy? Like what like what the you know, someone's gotta stand up for him. Yes. And to that end, um, how did he get into Mike's house? Well, it was probably um, unlocked because they were moving. Oh. So he just walked right in. Okay. And, and that assume. is, I'm going to just say it, that is a bad German Shepherd. Uh, bad boy, you're going to let this clearly <laughs> deranged guy. No, I'm just going to chill there. It's like the, that's the consummate guard dog <laughs> that will like rip your throat out. Like, what is that dog doing? My little four-pound poodle would have done more than this. That you, I, yeah, I didn't even realize this. We see Bongo in the corner, and then not again. He just sits there. Wow. He even has the German shepherds scared of him. Way to go, Zach! <laughs> <laughs> but while Zach is holding Susan hostage, Edie comes knocking to alert the neighborhood about somebody who has attacked Felicia, and she's like, "Susan, I see you in there," but Zach's like, "No." can't open the door you know what there's some actually really there's some really cool shots in this uh sequence some really great some really great camera work oh definitely what was so i'm sure i'm sure you've never held anybody hostage but (laughs) well well, the the first time i did that (laughs) just kidding no i've (laughs) not No, just was was there anything in particular kind of going through your mind of like, this is a big deal scene now, like stakes all the way up here um, while you were doing this particular sequence? Um, I think that there was a sense of during this season, uh, there was a sense that I had that I, because of the fact that the young family was kind of used very sparingly um, to sort of kind of give that mystery and that weird sort of what was happening that as an actor, I often found that I was sort of kind of playing the f- same scene over and over again. Mm. And if I, if I remember this was finally like the, you know, accumulation of, of those two years that they, we had been um, doing that. And uh, so this was finally like the moment of, you know, everything was coming to this head. And I don't really recall exactly how I approached it, but um, I do remember that it was, for me as a performer, it was one of obviously my my favorite times on this show. Yeah. I have a, a quick little game since we have Zach in the scene here. Uh, and I have just thought of it now. So if you hate it, we don't have to play. But Cody... I want to do if Zach was a dot, 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 and I will name a category and you give me the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, okay. Yeah, well, sure. Okay. So if Zach Young was dot, 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 an animal. Jackal. 
A plant. A poisonous orchid. <laughs> Day of the week. Wednesday. Fast food item. Uh, soggy fries. <laughs> Genre. Mystery th- thriller. I knew you were going to say that. Okay, cool, cool. I just wanted to see what we could come up with. It was a little, some associative uh, thinking there. Sure, that's the first thing that comes to mind. I, I do, I do, I should note that Zach, in that time 20 years ago, was such a different person than who I was. And now that 20 years has passed, completely different. So there is a sense of like, I'm also rediscovering all of this as well. And and it's interesting for me to like make, oh yeah, like that was me and I did that. Yeah. You know, because it, it does in a, in a way, a lot of times when I shoot something or work and I know a lot of other actors feel that way, you kind of like, you do it and you just put it behind you, you know, and you don't, um, you don't kind of revisit it uh, at least for a while because there's too much of a closeness and it's hard to have that separation between that's just a, that's just a show. This is a show. And regardless of the fact that that's you you know, that it's, and it's hard to kind of disassociate from that a little bit, but now yeah. it's really interesting to, to get to do that. <laughs> but Cody, how, <laughs> how would you feel about a totally unofficial, like fever sponsored cardboard <laughs> setup in Central Park <laughs> where, you know, the Desperate Housewives actors just come on and they, they get paid to just pretend they're on Wisteria Lane, but everything's made of cardboard. How much? Uh, how much cold medicine, Summer? Have have you been um, taking exactly? So much. No. So much. If you go back to our episode titled <laughs> "Sister Wives of Wisteria Lane," Summer came up with this whole business model that we would put up a fake Wisteria Lane. In, in Central, Central Park. Park and make all the actors come back and as Summer explained, <laughs> you pay and they can do whatever you want them to do. All right, that's called uh, OnlyFans. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you know what? Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Tears check. Can you guys see my tears? Yeah, so Zach is be is holding Susan hostage because he says he needs to kill Mike now because Felicia (laughs) somehow told him as um, he was beating her with what is now we know is a hockey um, stick that Mm -hmm. Mike has gone off to find and kill Paul. So now he thinks his dad's going to be dead and he in turn has to murder Mike. That's a reasonable (laughs) thought process. Yeah, I get it a little. I will say it's like if you think this guy is about to kill your dad and you have that in your mind already and I guess I get it. The chain of murder. His mind was made up. It's not. I mean, I I do believe that, you know, Zach doesn't really have, especially at this point, a very linear thought process. Yeah. You know, uh, he's he he is more of a as we were saying, he's more of an id. He's more of an emotion. Mm -hmm. And that's. And that's kind of, and at this point, it's just confusion and anger, really. Yeah. Do you think the confusion is what kept him from pulling the trigger so far on Susan? Um, no, actually, I don't, I actually don't think that Zach ever even intended on 
any of that. I think he just was having a, a literal emotional breakdown. Yeah. And I, I don't think he wanted any of that at all. I, I think the, the guy just needs help. He also takes everything out on Susan. Like Julie breaks up with him and he goes, I'm going to burn down Susan's kitchen. <laughs> Mike is killing his dad. I'm going to put a gun look on man, Susan. Look, man, don't, don't, don't stand between Zach and his woman. Okay. <laughs> burn that house down. <laughs> but, 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 but let's, but, but let's contextualize here. Why did Susan want Julie liked Zach, Zach liked Julie. What did Zach ever do except for be Zach? Nothing. You're going to tear these people apart. Like, and, and, and especially by the way, you burnt down Edie's house. Did, did, did we forget this? Like you, you've got, you've done some like really messed up things yourself. What did Zach do except for being an awkward 16 year old? Let's, let's ask that question. Zach doesn't help himself whenever he's told, no, he has a meltdown. No, like, that's what you I was can't... saying. He, he, he does make it very easy. He makes it very easy to be in that, for other people to see him in, as that and in, in that position. Well, he, he doesn't know how to regulate his emotions, arguably. Um, and and <laughs> we'll, we'll see why, but well, that like, has never been consider, So, so um, there's a scene, and I don't remember quite what episode it is. I, it was the audition scene for Zach. And it was when Paul and him are at the breakfast table. And he says, I looked for an obituary and I didn't see that you put one in. Why didn't you put one in? And, oh, I didn't get around to it. I don't remember what Paul's response was or something like that. And if you just, if you just analyze that small bit, I mean, this is a kid who's mourning for the loss of his mother who just committed suicide. He's trying to come to terms with understanding yeah. why this happened. He has no idea why it's happened. And all he knows is, is, is that his dad not only didn't put the obituary in, but won't even talk about it. Right, right. Mm -hmm. You know, so it, it, like, it's it's a very, obviously does not have the emotional uh, uh, maturity. I mean, obviously he's a teenager, your brain is, you know, what it is, but he's not getting any support from anybody. Agree. And I think also Paul, like his grieving is he just goes a little inwards. So he was like, I just want to be by myself mm. for a second. And then that came off as him not being a caring father, but he was the whole time. Right. Which is why, if you remember, there's a scene between Paul and Zach where Zach is, um, he's on the floor. He's found the murder weapon or the, excuse me, the suicide, uh, the, the gun that Mary Alice uses to kill herself. And he, his, he cannot understand why this is sitting in a, in a, in a drawer Right. Just so carelessly, and Paul offers zero explanation for it, and so it's it's just this sort of accumulation of events, you know. And 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 when we start to understand Paul, and and honestly, total testament to uh, Mark Moses's acting, you know, the like as you notice, the reason why he's so inward is dealing with this giant weight and secret that he didn't. He sort of just let his wife get him into. Mm -hmm. You know, and so he, so that's why he does, you know, Paul does become a sympathetic character in a way, even though he murdered a woman with a blender. And I'm going to just <laughs> keep saying that. But okay, it was because, for the oh, good yeah, of hey, the community. Season, season seven, Paul's back. Hey. <laughs> oh, okay. Paul, we, we don't care. You murdered this Cody, woman. nobody missed Martha Hoover. <laughs> I, it was for the good of the Wisteria Lane. She was up in everyone's business. 
He was Paul has done more team. for the community than Carlos has. <laughs> Yet nobody's putting Carlos out to pasture for his slave labor. <laughs> Look, I mean, what what businessman has not engaged in a little bit of sweat a little bit of sweatshop here and there? You know, what I mean, a little bit of sweatshop is crazy. I, I mean, that's just kind of was that was that was the that was the deal. Uh my perspective on that is is. I mean, obviously, you can't compare the ills of, of or the wrongs of two different people and say, "Well, he did this," and so you know. And and again, we are talking about television here, and we do what's entertaining and what keeps people watching, you know. And but if you tried to, if you tried to put it into real life, I mean, and I think that's one of the problems with a lot of film and cinema in that way is that one of the things that we love as an audience, right? We love justice. We love to yeah. see the bad guy get his. We love to see. You know, who are our heroes, right? We love Batman. Who is Batman? He's an entitled billionaire who th- takes justice into his own hands and beats the shit out of people and like and and like and goes around. He's a vigilante. He goes around, does whatever he wants with zero con- <laughs> with zero consequence for it, right? And 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 this is a trope in all of uh, uh, American film and, and it really mm. at the core of it, it starts with if you guys think about it, it starts with the Western. The Western picture is like probably and especially for 50, 60 years of American film history was like the most pivotal uh, thing in America. And what is, and it really shaped the identity of like the American man and what is that? It's like, there's this lawless place and everything's fucked up. And, but I know, I know what's right. And even though I'm a little rough around the edges and I'm, and I'm kind of an asshole, I'm the anti-hero, I'm going to come in and I'm going to lay down the law and it's going to be me who's going to do it. But in, in real life, we, if you, if you punch the bad guy, you go to jail for assault. You know, so that that's that's the real world that we live in, you know. So there's kind of this odd disconnect where it's like we want to see the justice, we want to see the bad guy, we love it so much, but like, yeah, no, maybe not so much in real life. Speaking of which, we have Carlos on the stand for his gay hate crime, and um, and basically. Gabby's on the stand and she's like okay well basically when he got convicted and the judge is like he hasn't been convicted for this yet and she goes no 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 his other crime like he was convicted for a different crime he started getting really <laughs> jealous and <laughs> that just made me laugh he's just getting really jealous and he I led him on to think I was having an affair because he was being annoying and um she specifically says he's an angry jealous Neanderthal but he's not a gay basher I'm, I'm just gonna say this I love Eva Longoria, truly. She is a genuine, good, smart, caring, very positive human being. I have nothing but amazing things to say about her. I hate Gabrielle Solis. <laughs> I was not expecting that. I am literally just going to say that. This is the... <laughs> She's so charming. She is the worst person on Mysteria Lane. The absolute, I don't care what Zach is, I don't care who's been beat up with a hockey stick, I don't care who's been murdered with a blender. That is the worst human being on Wisteria Lane. Cody! Okay, say more. Yeah, Maybe I should have said less. That's probably what I should have said. No, we what love it. We, this she's is vapid. She's vapid. She's manipulative. She's shallow. She's a liar. Yeah, she's so she- is Christy, but I still love her. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry our society and our values have been ruined 
by 15 years of the Kardashians. Excuse me that we <gasps> think that that's normal. No, you're right, and you should say it. You know how they do um, presidential debates? Like, they have the Republican <laughs> and the Democrat on either side, and they have the moderator. One day, we're going to have a live studio, and I'm going to have Christy on one side, Cody on the other side. I'm going to be the moderator. Debating all the characters. And we're just going to... We're going to just have you guys debate Gabrielle Solis for the entire two hours. I, I do think, again, that was a testament to the really good writing of the show, which mm. was to, you know, again, you're telling it from the perspective of Gabrielle. So, you know, you understand why or you understand her, you understand her process, you understand exactly all those things. And, and if you were telling it from a male's perspective, she would look like a manipulative, right. lying scumbag. And, but you understand why. And that's, again, that's where you get the nuance of characters. That's where you get um, good, not black and white writing, right? Because human beings, we're not black and white. We're not good. We're not bad. We're, we're none of those things. We're just, a lot of us do the wrong things for the right reasons, you know, or, or, or we do the right things for the wrong reasons. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's gray. And that's kind of like, you know, so to have a, you know, opinion about someone you know, so, so hard. I think that my only point of contention is that because it's told from the perspective of the women and I, and I watch it, and I, I, I feel like, why are all these girls getting these passes? Do this. Like, <laughs> what is going on here? Like, this is not normal behavior. Like, Oh, I'll oh, forgive gosh. this. Yeah. This 16 year old mentally ill kid who, who can't, you know, get anybody to love him, but, but uh, he must be the bad guy. Well, let's make him the bad guy. Great eval. I love it. I love it. I know. It. Again, um, we need and, a male and... perspective because we're just an echo chamber over here. Yeah. Like, right, like we have Carlos, all the same right? opinions he's he's on pretty thing. much he's everything. In the thing. He's, ha he's having his thing. His wife is ruining his testimony. Okay. Ruining it. She's, she's making him look horrible. <laughs> and, and, and then, and then you got, you know, lover boy comes in. Like, I did it. I did it. Right. And, <laughs> and then, and then, and then, and then Carlos flips out. Right. As you would as a man's like, yo, fuck you you fuck my wife like you know cute cute uh, uh robert de niro and joe pesci you fuck my wife <laughs> you fuck my wife but uh right and 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 but but the the context of the scene is that carlos looks bad right because he reacted like a like a like a dude would react and 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 he looks bad but okay yeah. <laughs> i also will say this is another point where i'm like where's andrew right now because his gay lover is on the stand, just got beat up by the man whose mom he killed. So I feel like he should have shown up. He is as far away from that courtroom <laughs> as anybody could possibly. <laughs> Showing up would be the worst possible thing for that sniveling. <laughs> sniveling is crazy. Season one, I think Andrew's the worst character on this show. I will say, I. It's not Rex. It's Andrew. He's and, me. Andrew. Andrew is a is a Scorpio with a Leo rising. Boom. <laughs> Let's go. Um, Cody, do you want to lead us into the next scene because it's it's mostly a visual, and uh, if you want to kick us off for that next scene, what do we have here? Uh, we're going in. Lover boy comes in. Mike and Paul. <laughs> I I did it. I banged your wife. No, Carlos. No. He's doing it again. <laughs> Just thinking about Mike and Paul in the quarry. 
The quarry? Quarry. All right, so Mike and Paul, here we go. So looks like um, a quarry to me. I don't know what a quarry is. <laughs> what are we seeing? Yeah, it's, you know, where they go and mine, mine out material. Um, How come you both know what a quarry is and I you don't? You don't know what a quarry is? How would I know what a quarry is? What it certainly is. It looks okay, like. I'm, okay, I'm glad I was right. Is that from Minecraft? No, it's like where um, I had no, to go to like from, a grand That's from quarry. civilization. <laughs> okay, you know what, Cody? Why don't you just take the scene? <laughs> so um, Mike's Mike's upset. He's throwing Paul down. Um, you know, this is this is the pivotal moment between the two. And you know, Mike has obviously realized what happened to Deidre. You know, he uh, knows Paul's responsible for it. He doesn't know the full picture of the story of what happened really but you know he's he's here mike is here on wisteria lane to discover the mystery he is there with noah figuring out what happened to his wife and child i love that when paul was thrown on the ground and mike rips off his duct tape paul immediately goes martha hoover ruined lives she was terrible to the community <laughs> Like he does, does not he say that? Hold on, let's breath. see that. He does, he does. He goes, Martha Hoover ruined lives. I did what I had to do. He ru she ruined my family. It was so funny. Because okay. because so at this true. point he he thinks that Mike is trying to exact vengeance for he's trying to avenge Martha Hoover's death, which is <laughs> that's like right. so that's right, that's right, because Mike doesn't know uh, excuse me, Paul doesn't know Mike's involvement. Right. right. Paul's like Damn, that's crazy. I didn't know anybody cared that much, except Felicia. And he's still not going to know for a little while because we have to <laughs> cut back to Rex, who is at the doctor, and the doctor says that, uh, or he's still in the hospital, I guess, but uh, the doctor's like, hey, your potassium level keeps climbing. It's something you're ingesting. Who is preparing your meals? Which, <sighs> why is nobody considering the thought of it being the medication. Why is Brie automatically to blame? Especially these are two cardiologists. Throw back to the first season where she inadvertently gives him onion. Yeah, and they, they do bring that up. But still, like, wouldn't Rex know what he's eating? Like, I feel like as a doctor, you know what's high in potassium. Like, I don't yeah, think she's I, feeding I, him right, bananas. There should, be some, there should be some blood work that could, like, determine. Not that I know. I have no idea. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> Dr. Cody Cash. So we were saying, we were like this whole time, why can't Rex figure out what's wrong with him? He's literally trained in this. And then finally he's like, let me see my chart. Let me see what it says. And he's like, this can't be right. And he's like, don't talk about my wife like that. She didn't do this. But in his head, he's like, oh my God, Bree's been poisoning me. Then we get to Tom and Lynette. Now, no, no 20 year old spoilers at all, but Mm -hmm. You guys are going to have to remind me, before Rex passes, does he doesn't realize it's George, correct? He never finds out, no. no. He never finds out. Oh, that's horrible. No. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, we'll get there. So he sad. didn't find out, yeah. Lynette's just sitting in the dark again, which she did before. <laughs> and Tom just comes in and she goes, did you have fun? And Tom goes, this was the best day of my life. And he tells Let's make Lynette, a baby. <laughs> you know His what? It's shocking he didn't say that because he loves having children. He loves whatever we said about that before, actually. I said um, he has a breeding it. kink. A he breeding loves kink. To That's what it was. Breed his wife. If, if Tom had a womb, he'd have 40, 40 kids. 
You're right, and you should say it. He was a kangaroo in a past life. Not a kangaroo. <laughs> Not a kangaroo. Oh my god. A seahorse. I don't know why I thought kangaroo. I mean, I I love that tradition. I mean, like that's your life. You want you, you want kids. That's you know. I mean, that's that's the most normal relationship on all of Wisteria Lane. Right Cody, there. why does he need an army of children? <laughs> he's literally. I he's Nick Cannon. He's raising the elf. Army. Listen, listen. I know we're in twenty twenty four now, and and the whole world is set on point five children, but you know. There, 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 there was a time, there was a time when, you know, that was the thing. Personally, Wasp, because I don't know, does she, did, is she happy that he's happy? Is she not happy that he's happy? She's confused that he's happy. <laughs> She's, She's confused. confused right? But also, we see her struggle with being a stay-at-home mom because they've told us, a bunch of people have said, um, a bunch of characters have insinuated that Lynette was better at the job they both did than Tom was and that she was a shark and he was just okay. And he finally says that he was like, you are better at marketing than I am. I'm going to be a stay at home dad and you're going to go back to work. And she's shocked. And she's like, okay, sounds good. And this just, it fits him. He's a kid at heart. At first, Lynette is sort of protesting a little bit and she's like, I don't know. Like, shouldn't we talk about this at length? And he gets a little bit menacing and he says, I've already made the decision. You're going back to work. <laughs> but it's what she it's what she's wanted. It's what she's it's been her biggest point of unhappiness. Yeah. And That's and what it. she so he's he's just being a good husband, let's just say. I'm so excited for the the new Tom arc because this is his vocation, okay? He's meant to be just a stay-at-home dad. I'm saying he wasn't living his truth. He wants to be unemployed. Like, and he wanted all those kids, so he should be the one to take care of them. You know, the grass is greener on the other side. You have one thing, you want the other thing, you have it. And and it's like, we're all just, you know, I, I, the theme of the show, we're all just living lives of quiet desperation. Well, perhaps you can speak a little more to that because the next scene is, is going to be Susan and... Zach once again. Right, and this is Zach in his happiness. Yeah. <laughs> He's got her hostage. Susan still thinks that Dana was the baby that Zach accidentally killed. And um, when she says that to Zach, he again is in his meltdown era, starts throwing the soda she got him, and goes, no, that didn't happen, and then tells her what actually did, in fact, concur. Doesn't Zach say something to him, uh, to her, like, how stupid are you? I think he does. Yeah. Yeah. He I believe, sure too, if I remember, that was the, that was the only take that I did where I slammed that soda down. Nice touch. I mean, yeah, this, this was, this was the, 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 um, this was the boiling point for this character. Really, I think probably in the entirety of the show. Um, for Zach, this was sort of everything had been leading to this moment, and uh, I don't know that we ever saw him again, uh, having so much at stake and all of this just coming to a head. I just like that he came to a head with Susan because, again, 
this whole season, it's like they haven't directly had any issues, but they have because of who they're connected to. That, like, Susan's just trying to protect Julie for whatever. And there's just this whole, like, familial net that they don't even realize is connected. It's sort of like Paul we Paul Young's Day Daily and Web of Lies, if you will. In the next scene, Rex dies. And... <laughs> this is the phone call. And he starts writing a letter Brie I understand I forgive you so he dies thinking that Brie was poisoning him and then so sad Brie gets a call that he died and this I actually teared up a little bit and I was very surprised because in the beginning of the season we were like can't he just die already we're sick of Rex and now I'm like I'm sad I'm sad about it and as soon as Brie gets the call she hangs up by saying well, thank you very much for calling. She goes right back to polishing the silver and it's just this very haunting moment of nothing hitting her. And then finally she finishes that task, looks at Rex's chair at the other head of the table and breaks down. And it's just so heart-wrenching. Because it's really the first time that we see that facade um the way that she deals and operates in her life, it just breaks, which is why I, their relationship is so well done. I mean, they're just people who do love each other and just couldn't find a way back to it. Marsha Cross, I like I had chills in her little scene here, like just the way she just started weeping. Oh, she's amazing. The Juilliard really really shined showed through jumped out jumped yeah. out paul has a gun to or mike has a paul to guns oh my god <laughs> <laughs> mike has a gun to paul's head he's about to shoot and paul's kind of like heckling him a little i don't remember exactly what he said but i just wrote he's heckling him a little bit because i i think he wants to know why because obviously he just thinks it's like Mrs. Hoover, but maybe he's also kind of like, did Mrs. Hoover mean that much to you, Mike Delfino? <laughs> um, so then that's when Mike takes out the picture of Deidre. And uh, for some reason I wrote, Paul is a broken man. <laughs> I don't know what made me write that. Oh, I think I do. What I don't understand is like, how long was their journey? Like, why didn't they have this conversation in the car? Because like, Paul didn't have to be duct taped. They could have solved this hours ago. But right, right. They didn't. Well, I, th I, th <laughs> I think that Mike's intention always was to kill Paul here. For sure. And he was, you know, he was convicted to do it. So that's, um, and now, and now as we move through it, now we're getting the flashback about what had actually happened this night. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, as you can see, I'm a very young toddler there. Um, so this, yeah, this is the night that Deidre, who had made this deal with them, obviously she wants her child back. They've already built, um, you know, a family together. And uh, you can see Mary Alice is um, happy about her family. So to see Deidre show back up at her front door, you know, obviously she understands um, all the implications of 
what that means for them and her. And, you know, we don't know what she's going to do. We don't know, you know. Um, and so Deidre obviously gives her story about, you know, the position she was in when she was strung out on drugs and uh, why she did what she did. And, and now she rightfully wants her child back. Young Zach is so, so adorable. Like that is the cutest kid. I know that's such a sidebar, but <laughs> I'm not a kid person. And I just thought he was so cute. Yeah. I mean, I like teenage Zach a little more. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a little biased. But I loved the shots in this scene and the foreshadowing. You see Mary Alice like chopping the vegetables with the knife. And then they're just like a little happy family. And um, then Deirdre starts to get a little aggressive and Mary Alice assumes that she's using again. And then Deirdre like hits Paul with something and Paul immediately like collapses on the ground. And I was like, that just shows he was such a fragile, you know, nonviolent man. He was a new, he was a, he was a noodle is what he was. He, he was, was a noodle. He was, he would never hurt a fly. And then... Deirdre's about to okay, run up. Okay, all right, but let's let's be let's be real here. Let's be real here. Right there, right there. She picks up the the, the iron and she beats Paul down. So this woman comes in. So she, this woman comes into their house and assaults them. Actually, mm-hmm. right. She had every right to kill her. Let's be real. That's legally, what I was going to ask you. Actually, legally speaking. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys: self defense, yay or nay? Could they have gone most to the police? Certainly. They yeah. most certainly have a case. Even at them, she she gave the child away. She did. Yep. Maybe it wasn't legally adopted, you know. But but it wasn't. Then she comes into their home. They invite her in, and she assaults them with a with a weapon, a deadly weapon, assault with a deadly weapon, intent to kill inside somebody's home. And then, so what the young family could have done here is just gone to the cops and been like, "Here's here's what happened. This whole story thing, giving them the story." And they most certainly probably would have kept Zach. Yeah, I think Paul's only flaw is that he doesn't really think clearly ever. Right. Like he doesn't, he just like kind of thinks like, like digging up the the toy chest wasn't really that smart. I don't think any of this would have happened. He could have just left it there. Same with this. Like they could have called the police and said, oh my God, she just attacked us. Like I was just going to try to get her in the leg or something. And I accidentally killed her. Like they definitely had a case, but instead um, when Mary Alice turns around and just, stabs her in the stomach or wherever they decide to chop her into little bits and put her in Zach's toy chest. And we see what I personally attributed to uh, the formation of Zach's personality as we see it today, because the cute little toddler Zach is standing at the top of the stairs and sees dead Deirdre on the floor Cody, feel free to confirm or deny, but do, do you think that's when things started to like change for young Zach? I mean, I think you could certainly say that, but he, I mean, they obviously have an entire, you know, 10 years with this kid to, you know, give him the nurture, nurturement and the, you know, health that he deserves and the love that he deserves. And I, I don't know. To be honest, I don't know why Zach would have ended up the way that he ended up without that. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe this event, because you can clearly see Mary Alice, Angela, Mary Alice is a 
a very loving mother and clearly loves Zach very much. So maybe something shifted with her, which is why she commits suicide, you know, that she couldn't ever, the guilt or the trauma or something, she couldn't actually give Zach again the love. But you, I would think it would be the opposite. I would think that after you've done this deed and you've gone that far to chop this woman out, all chopped up in a box and 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 i'm sorry i just love that line shout out to brett shout out to brett um uh i actually uh shot a movie with brett colin a few years later and uh so i got to work with him and this was right before he did if you recognize brett i'm just i love brett he's really a great guy he uh also just played thomas wayne in the joker movie he played joaquin joaquin's father uh but that's really cool uh, or not his father, but any case, um, I, you, I would think it would be the opposite. I would think if you've gone that far and you've committed this act and you've taken this child and you've lived a double life and you have this whole other thing, you're going to like, you're going to really give this kid mm, mm. all of like, like, you know, the love that you possibly can, because you, you you've made the commitment. I mean, you're, you're in this deep, the mm-hmm. commit, the commitment is there. So I can't, I don't know why you could say maybe it messed Zach up, but obviously they they messed him up you know and so they i i just it's it's hard to make those connections i was really really eager to get your take on that so i'm very glad we finally have it i would say that i think it messed up paul the most because he says while lying on the ground frail never heard a fly goes oh mary alice what did you do and I think that maybe you could also make the argument that um, Zach is really mentally ill. He is a sociopath, but he's not. He's not actually. You you see him in these mo- in these moments with Julie and these moments with, you know, later in uh, the seventh season where like he 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 doesn't really care about himself more than anybody else. You know, he do- he isn't just he just you know, I, and that's why I I. I'm a little amused, bemused at uh, all the fanfare that Paul gets because in, <laughs> in, from my perspective in watching it, I'm like, this is a fucked up dude. No, but I mean, you know what? In, in thinking about it and rewatching and, and seeing contextually, um, it, it really Mary Alice caused this mess. She did. Was, I didn't realize it, that. It was really Mary Alice. Yeah, I didn't realize that. To that end... We find out in this scene that Mike didn't even know Deidre had a baby, which is clearly uh, disturbing to him. You can see it in his eyes. I, I do think that they they could have certainly explored the Mike Zach relationship a lot more in depth than than they did. It, it was like it was just kind of this odd little like sidebar that sort of never really came into being anything. That is true. I feel like it would have made more sense for him to be like, no, Zach's my kid. I guess, I mean, he tried to do that in the beginning, but then to have him, like that could have been a whole other like aspect of him just like taking Zach and being like, no, you're my son now. You live with me. Yeah, but then, you know, you you look at Zach and like, you know, that's some damaged goods right there. Let's just move on. We got a new one. MJ. <laughs> MJ's going to be, MJ is going to be the one. Damaged goods is crazy. (laughs) In our closing monologue, we see Lynette watching her kids sleeping and she's thinking about her future back in the ad game. Gabby is awake in the dark, 
thinking about her future <laughs> and Carlos and the mess that has been made in court. Uh, Brie is looking sad yet beautiful and uh, Mary Alice is talking about how things never really were perfect anyway and of course the last thing we see is Zach with Susan and the gun. No, the last thing we right. see is Mike going walking in the door. Yeah. I was oh, waiting right. for you because to say that. The first oh. episode of season of the next season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, gosh, so so I'm a little turned around here because I I, I forgot that this is the, the season finale of of season one. Yeah. Because when I see the Apple Whites, my brain always thinks that we're in season two. Me too. Same. We, right? we, so we I didn't thought, realize so the Apple Whites, and I'm early. like, wait, are we are we in season? Yeah, that's right. They came in in that in that episode. So that that was the season finale for season one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, for some reason, I was like thinking it was season two. That wouldn't have made any sense. Yeah. Yes. Please, please give us your your final thoughts, your overall review. From from my uh, view now, at this time, I really do believe that that first season of Desperate Housewives was fantastic television. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting going back, not having really any skin in the game, not having any, I mean, there have been so many things that I would never say that about, but there's, there was just such a, a great bit of television there. And yeah. um, it's really fun for me to get, I think that as we were going through it, there was a lot of stuff that I never had thought about before stuff so thank you guys for having me on and uh, all, uh ultimately if, if give your kids a hug and, and give them a break if they're a little weird i'm just gonna i'm just gonna leave i'm gonna leave you guys with that we didn't also talk about the scene where mike makes the decision not to kill paul oh there, we, we did skip gonna... over that we didn't say that oh in light of everything that in light well just in light of everything that we saw that really paul was just kind of like along for the ride here uh, for this, for this thing, I think that Mike saw that and he understood, and I think that they he he realized that Paul is a little pathetic, and and I and I think that he um, was able to uh, he made the right choice, you know. Ultimately, Mike is the Mike's the good guy, you know. He's the everyman. He's the he is the 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 dream. He's the dream man. I just want to know how Paul got home, and I think about this every time I've ever watched this episode. Mike just like drops the gun and walks away and we never see left him how in the quarry left him in the quarry yes we <laughs> never see how he got home did he have to walk he was in the middle of nowhere like this actually i don't understand we call a cab there's no ubers at that time again you saw their phones they're using nokia flip phones i guess he walked uh, defi- home definitely probably called a cab I'm sure there's a payphone somewhere. He, he had to do those. some walking. They used, they, for they sure. In the quarry? He's going he's gonna to leave the quarry. He's going <laughs> to call and he's going to come back. I am not going to forgive you guys for teaching me that new word. <laughs> Cody, it has been an absolute pleasure recapping this episode with you. Uh, is there anything you would like to plug? Anything you'd like to shout out, tell people to be on the lookout for from you? Uh, no, Summer, thank you. Um, right now, uh, you know, uh, in regards to what I've been doing, you know, I spent that you just witnessed my childhood. I spent 20 years working in film and television and, you know, it was and is my life's work. And for me, I've just taken some time off 
in the last couple of years and just traveled and enjoyed myself. And, uh, um, but, uh, yeah, we have our strike ending and, you know, for me, I have a, uh, well, it's ended, but, um, <laughs> yeah, for me, I'm, I'm in, in the process of, uh, been developing a production company for the last eight years. And, uh, I have a lot of different films that, you know, I'm looking forward to, uh, getting into for me personally, I, I love my work as an actor, but we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier mm -hmm. about the inconsistencies of it. And it's very, you know, difficult to, uh, build a life around that sometimes. And, you know, I know a lot of child actors, I struggle really hard mm -hmm. as they, uh, get older because, you know, you may have worked really consistently yeah. as a younger person, you know, but it's very few of us that we end up in a position where we're working a lot. I happen to be a, an incredible fan of c cinema. And so, yeah, for me, you're going to um, see some films that I have written and some films that I have directed. And uh, that's the next couple of years for me. No, that's awesome, actually. I love it when actors just completely 180 and go the production company route. You know, I was just thinking about this. There's a, there, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we have such an education. I have such a, mm -hmm. you know, my, my, all of my, expertise is in this field specifically and it's you kind of like wonder what to do with it if you don't you know it's it's a very hard gig for the there is a very small percentage of actors who work a lot and even with there's even a smaller percentage of those working actors that are the big name actors that you know get the majority of the pro, uh, mm -hmm. projects and i think that you, you know you try to figure out exactly how you're going to be make a contribution to the art and make a contribution to the world with what's going to be your work and you're going to do. And for me, it was just sort of kind of similar in a way to, to Ron Howard, who came up as a, a child actors, family, family of actors. I was family of actors. Mm -hmm. He'd worked thoroughly and, you know, throughout his young adult, but never really had the big name as a, as a, as an actor. And uh, then went into production and filmmaking and made some of the greatest films you know, from the perspective of an actor, which is, you know, yeah. we know character and, and we know writing and that's kind of what our strong suits are as actors, you know, um, when we get into filmmaking. So, yeah, for me, it's 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 been a process. You know, we live in a world now. I mean, Desperate Housewives was shot in 2004. We started. Uh, we ran into 2012. That was just the beginning of social media yeah. and the social media takeover. It was a hard transition for a lot of us because the, the model that we used at that time was a model that like you had to be very very careful with what um stuff that you did if you were on a bad television show if you did bad commercials you know you were very much in a category and there was this idea that if you overexposed yourself right if you were someone who was like you know because there's categories there's entertainers there's actors there's yeah. uh, uh, there's sometimes you're all three sometimes you're Hugh Jackman right? You're the, mm -hmm. you're the consummate, you're the entertainer, you're the star, and you're also an actor, right? right? That's very rare. It's, it's, it's usually you're one of the other. Usually you're the go-to guy who you've seen in a million movies, right? But you don't know who the guy is, he, but he always delivers. He always says delivers. And, um, and, and for, for a lot of us, it was like, you know, any, there was actually the paradigm was like, actually, no, bad publicity is bad publicity. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you're seen in a very specific way, it was a much more conservative time. 9-11, it just happened. You know, um, we, we were very careful with what we did. We were very careful with putting things out there. We were very private. And, um, you know, 
then when social media took over, a lot of people in my generation have had this conversation a lot with a lot of actors. I uh, just had this conversation with the actor uh, Jonathan Lipnicki, right? Who was a child star. You have Jerry Maguire and Little Stewart and My Little Vampire. And, you know, it was like we had a different model. We, we, we didn't embrace social media as readily as other people did because we thought we had this idea that it cheapened um, your value. Mm-hmm. As, as a performer and that anonymity was was more an asset than it was negative but the last 15 years real re- last 10 years really you know showed us that no just put yourself out there right and but but for me it, again because this is my life's work it was never about that it was about i'm going to do something it's going to be something of value and something quality and that is you will have a more of an everlasting and it's not about fame. It's not about money. It's not about any of that stuff. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of where my life has taken me. And, um, in the next 10 years, I'm going to, uh, make probably 10 films. Extremely well said. (laughs) I think I speak for Christy and myself when I say we're really excited to see everything that's going to be coming from you. Um, and we're just really grateful to have been able to spend this time with you and that you gave us some extra time. And it's, this has just been like a really wonderful, insightful conversation. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, it was really a pleasure. Um, you guys are lovely, Chrissy. You guys are just lovely. I, I really only, uh, felt in, uh, sort of drawn, uh, and inclined to do this because I saw your stuff. I saw your page, I, saw, I listened to your podcast and, and, and honestly, I, I never really fully embraced, you know, the the fans. I never embraced the public side of what I do. Just mm-hmm. I didn't. I kept a very low profile. And so right. this is actually my really one of my first in-depth, you know, conversations about it's so weird because it was 20 years ago, but I never, you know, did it. So it was I felt very uh, good about doing it with you guys. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Yes, we are so, wow, that's such an honor. I'm so glad that we get to be the ones to introduce you, Cody, into the world of the free. The Desperate Housewives. The Desperate Housewives super fans, so they can see you a different way than Zach Young. Desperate Housewives super fans, we hope you enjoyed this little treat. And until next time, this has been We Know What You Did. It makes us sick. Is all chopped up. Oh wait, that's that's not it. <laughs> We're gonna tell. <laughs> Bye guys.